Hello and welcome to Spectator's Book Club podcast. I'm Sam Leith, the literary editor of The Spectator, and this week my guest is Lauren Huff, the author of a new collection of essays called Leaving Isn't the Hardest Thing. Um, Lauren, welcome. Thank you so much. These are very personal essays. That it's, it's, it's kind of a memoir in fragments. What made you do it that way? What made you kind of produce it as essays? Um, it just seemed like, and my editor actually talked me into it. I, I sent out a proposal for a straight memoir. And uh, when we talked, it, it sounded like more fun. I could play around with the timeline more. I could um, gather anecdotes and stories to say what I wanted to say. And it just gave me a lot more freedom. And it's kind of... Well, there's so much in it that's sort of hair-raising. I mean, you've led the most extraordinary life. It begins with your car being set on fire. Can you tell us how that... How, how we get to there? <laughs> how did we get to there? I was serving the Air Force under Don't Ask, Don't Tell, and one of the many problems with that law in the military was that if you were being threatened, if you were being harassed, you couldn't say anything because that would mean, you know, the the question to why you were being harassed would be the answer you couldn't give anyone without getting yourself kicked out of the military. And typically they would go after the person being harassed instead of the harasser. So I'd been getting threats. I didn't really take them seriously. I thought they were just people being jerks or just didn't take them seriously. I had orders to leave the base. So uh, when my car blew up, blew up I, I took that a little more seriously, <laughs> to say the least. And yeah, they, in typical fashion, instead of trying to figure out who did it, they went after me. It seems like it was the easiest way to, to get rid of the problem was to just get rid of the gay. Yeah. Um... Your your story is one where you're moving around constantly. I mean, the backdrop to all of this is you grew up in a cult. I mean, the most kind of one of the most famous and notorious cults, the Children of God. Can you tell us a bit about that? I mean, because you you say you couldn't <laughs> tell anybody for a long time. Yeah, I didn't think I could. It's one of those things. It was so different, and part of it was my own limiting of it was. It's such a strange thing being the children of God being a sex cult, the just trying to explain it to anyone was so difficult that, you know, we lived in communes, we changed diapers, we didn't go to school. I could just imagine the strange look that people's faces would develop if I started talking about it, that I was just terrified I would lose any friends they had, any... Yeah, and part of that was just the shame that we get from you know, our parents, or a lot of it's just internal, that, you know, don't tell anybody about this. Nobody will ever understand. And so I liken it to coming out as being gay because, yeah, you don't get to really have true friendships or true relationships or true anything if you're hiding a huge part of who you are and what made you who you are. So... Yeah, you come out, you might lose a few friends, but those you do keep are true now because you've actually 
told them who you are and can explain it a little better. They understand a thing about you. And how much did your experiences of kind of having to hide, having to lie? I mean, I don't want to sort of be too glib about this, but maybe I'm being glib about it, that that sort of observation and deception, was that some sort of preparation for being a writer? I mean, do you think the seed of the writer was in this persona who was travelling around pretending not to be what you were? Possibly. It's hard to say. It's one of those, you can't really prove a negative. I don't know who or what I would have been had I not grown up in a cult. Maybe I would have been a writer. I I don't know. But I know I I kind of hid in books whenever I could. And books were where I sort of came alive and reading about other people's lives. And uh, it was just a way to shut off my brain. And I started loving it and started writing my own. They were all terrible. They all sounded like someone else. But you know, I'd, I'd read someone and write something that sounded exactly like them. I didn't know what I sounded like without that. But uh, it's I certainly had something to write about. Yeah. <laughs> who who were you reading and imitating? When you, I mean, what, was what you were able to read constrained by... Oh, as a child, yeah. We weren't allowed to read anything outside of cult literature. Uh, my grandmothers would send me books sometimes, so you know, I'd get to read White Fang or, you know... They would send me a lot of Jane Austen and Louis L'Amour novels. I don't think they had any plan as to my reading list. It was just whatever paperback they had lying around would get tossed into the box with some clothes from a garage sale. But yeah, I devoured them. Um, I didn't start writing until long after I got out. And then it was, you know, if I read Chuck Palahniuk, I wrote Chuck Palahniuk. If I read uh, Kurt Vonnegut, that's, that's who I tried to imitate. But the voice of this book, I mean, it's a book that in other hands would be what gets dismissively called a misery memoir. I mean, the material that you go through in it is deeply traumatising, as you say, but the tone of voice you've got for it is funny, sort of sane, sarcastic. It's a very poised sort of thing. I mean, was that a really conscious... Like, I need to make this funny, I need to be conversational. Yeah, it definitely was. I tried to avoid as much as possible writing anything that could resemble trauma porn. I didn't want to give people a whole lot of stories and say nothing. I didn't want to write it until I had something to say about any of it. So the way to avoid that, I think, was... I mean, yeah, I, I tried it a lot of different ways. I used to go up on stage and do stand-up in small open mic nights and just tell stories from my childhood and see what I could get away with and make people laugh. And it worked. I, I think yeah, it was probably good training for writing this book, finally, and making it not just trauma porn, not just sad stories, not just a list of terrible things that happened. Am I right in understanding that you're into the essays? It started out as coming out of the cable guy stories, because you were among your many, many jobs, you know, bouncer in a gay bar. You you were a cable guy. You went around fixing yeah. people's cable. And that was how <laughs> this book started. Is that right? 
Yeah, it's definitely how this version started. I had gotten an agent from a different memoir that I wrote, and it really was just a list of sad things that happened. And I, towards the end of it, I didn't even want to sell it. And no one bought it, thank God. No one wanted to read it. So I was going to a community college, and I started tweeting about random cable guy stories, and someone asked me to write a story about them. So the cable guy essay was just sort of a throwaway essay. I saw it. I wrote it in a weekend, sitting out. Most of it was written. I was working as a bouncer at a gay bar, and I was sitting out front and wrote most of it in a notebook, uh, and then went home and you know, put it on the computer. But yeah, I I didn't even know what an essay was. I thought they were called short stories. <laughs> I had no idea what I was doing. And yeah, it caught on, so that went obscenely viral. And yeah, I... I I got a book deal off of it, really. And do you ever... Well, I mean, there's sort of two questions. One is, do you kind of find yourself ever burnishing the truth a bit to make it funnier, to make putting some literary craft in it? And also, are you confident you're remembering everything right? Because one of the things of trauma, notoriously, is it, is it messes with your memory. Yeah, I'm never confident I'm mem- remembering things right. There are a lot of points I'll argue with my siblings about... I've tried fact-checking everything. Some of the military stuff was easy just because I had the court records for all of it. The earlier childhood stuff, I don't know. I know I know. going back is <laughs> probably not something you want a writer saying, but I took a lot of mushrooms, and what I did was <laughs> I'd try to pick out the stories that had texture to them, where I could smell the room, where I could you know, see the walls where I could smell the people there. Yeah, it seemed to differentiate what memories were real or not, but who knows? Memory doesn't work like that. We just remember the stories we've been telling ourselves. So yeah, there's no way to know. And you really did fix Dick Cheney's cable, though. (laughs) I really did. It's funny, when I put that story out, it's funny what people latch on to. Because I had a friend pull the work order. Because I was sure people would call me a liar over that. They didn't think that was the lie. They thought the lie was that I was talking to a horse. Not that the horse was talking, but that a horse would come over to me. Yeah, I've stopped guessing what people will fixate on. Now, I did want to ask, because it sort of seemed to start, you know, it's been born in this period of virality. You know, you, you it was that essay that caught on, that produced the book. And a lot of the books on this kind of hinge between, you know, way back in the old days before we had the internet, quite as we do now, and this very kind of, you know, you're saying, like, when you first arrive in Washington, you're sleeping in your car, you know, you can't connect with people in the same way you could. You can't connect with former survivors, the family, you can't, you know, nowadays, you sort of almost go, like, right, kids, you won't believe this, but back in the day, we didn't have, you know, Craigslist (laughs) or whatever it was. Yeah. I mean... Do you think your experience of coming out as gay, of escaping from a cult, would have been substantially changed and or improved if they were, you know, happened in the age of Web 2.0? Yeah, I do. I I don't want to give the internet any credit because you know, I spend a lot of time on Twitter and that's a hellfire. But at the same time, I don't. I don't even know that I'd have a career if it weren't for Twitter. That cable guy essay caught on because 
I told a lot of stories on Twitter. I've made contacts in the writing world. I made friends with Elizabeth McCracken and Roxanne Gay because of Twitter. So it definitely made my career. And then, yeah, as a younger kid, I I might have figured out how to go to college if I'd had access to the internet, but we didn't. That we had access to, you know, one lady in the school you went and asked, and if she didn't care, you didn't get answers. So it's definitely made life a whole lot easier. It's definitely made us a whole lot more connected. And in other ways, it's 15% of America believes that pedophiles are in charge of the country. So it's not all great. For a lot of kind of, I guess, liberal, affluent, literary America, you know, you're bringing them news from the experience of jobs and situations that, you know, aren't completely familiar to them. I mean, what do you think are the big misunderstandings, the things people don't get? Because sometimes you're saying, like, look, I've spent a lot of time with cops. I've spent a lot of time with drug dealers. Yeah, I think a lot of it's become apparent during the pandemic. There's a story out this morning about how many people are avoiding getting the vaccine because they won't have a day off work to deal with the side effects of the vaccine. I don't think a lot of America realizes how many of us have to ask permission to just go to the bathroom and how dehumanizing that is. And that's... You know, what I clicked on with the, the cable guy story, they don't realize how many people are working sick on a daily basis because we don't have sick days. And if you do have a sick day, it's not like you can afford to go to the doctor. So, yeah, I wanted, I don't think these are stories you hear about often in literature, and I think it's just people are too tired to write them. I didn't write anything while I was working as a cable guy. I was too tired. I'd get home and you know try to zone out for twenty minutes in front of the TV after I'd you know made dinner and walked the dogs and that was it. That was all I had. My brain was just completely fried. I wrote a lot of a book sitting behind a Home Depot on lunch breaks on my laptop, my work laptop. But it was crap. It was complete crap. It was exactly what you would think you would write if you were writing in forty-five minute bursts. It. <laughs> None of it made any sense whatsoever. It was all very disconnected. I don't think working class voices are people we hear from a lot. Every election cycle, they'll go into you know, cafes and diners and they'll talk to the customers, but nobody ever goes into the kitchen and talks to the cooks. And the, the kind of virality thing, I kind of have to ask you about this because it blew up shortly. <laughs> I was reading your book when this blew up. But the Goodreads thing, you know... <laughs> I mean, this may be uh, too soon, but it was extraordinary. And I, you made a remark on good... Well, maybe you'd better tell the story yourself, but it was either a genius piece of marketing or a terrible piece of masochism. I'm not sure which... How it was. <laughs> it was probably more the latter. It was... It might have been self-sabotage. I don't know. I. It was the night before the book came out. I think I'd been in like a month-long panic attack about the book coming out. So it was one of those, you can't talk about the thing you're terrified of, which was people reading this book. So I thought I was talking about something that didn't matter at all. It turns out it mattered a whole lot to a whole lot of people, it seems. 
But who knows, really, once it hits the algorithm, words don't mean things anymore. It's just people are angry and they're not even sure what they're angry about. They're just get riled up because all their friends are riled up. I should say for the, for the listeners, Lauren made a remark about the way people were downgrading or upgrading Goodreads votes. I think this is right to say they were rounding 4.5 stars down to 4. And anyway, as a result, everyone said, what a bitch, swarmed her Goodreads, and the book's now got millions and millions of negative reviews on Goodreads, which you sort of went, like, this is now worse reviewed than Mein Kampf. It's got fewer stars. <laughs> yeah. It's fun. Um, <laughs> but it didn't stop it going in the in the New York Times bestseller list. Yeah, it did. I I don't really know what to think about it. It's it's one of those things where I I really hope I didn't hurt the book, and I it did make the bestseller list, so maybe I didn't hurt it too bad. But I just don't want it to be the conversation because there were there are a lot of conversations I think that need to be had in the book that aren't that aren't about you know whether a 0.5 exists on goodreads yeah no sorry it's it's only it's, it's a sort of, <laughs> i didn't get yeah, I, yet to ask you about that but i i'm just <laughs> interested that that, that is a kind of something about the communities of the way we talk about books gets derailed quite easily yeah i think so i think it happens with a lot of marginalized writers where we end up talking about the writer and not the work that's just the way that goes i'm privileged enough to have a large publisher behind me when it happens to you know a trans author next time I I don't know what'll happen and I think that was the really ham-handed point I was trying to make who knows but it's unfortunate and you say you were you were frightened of people reading the book is that kind of this this internalized shame you're talking about, or is it just nerves? Well, it's just nerves. I I didn't write any of this with with the intent of anyone reading it, which sounds silly, but I couldn't think about people reading it, or I would never have written it. And now, I did it with my agent a couple of weeks ago. It's just like, why did you let me put an entire paragraph of sex acts? in the book. There's just one paragraph that's just a list of sex acts. <laughs> and, uh, yeah, people are people are reading this, and now I... The fun part, and it's great sometimes people are reading, meeting me outside bookstores or I'm giving interviews, and you know they'll jump outside their car at, in front of a bookstore to like, get me to sign their book, and I... I know all of the things that they know about me, and I know nothing about them. Like, I'm learning your name, and you're wondering what exactly I meant by blowjob. Aren't you a lesbian? <laughs> yeah, it's it's just difficult to deal with the information imbalance. And yeah, it's just the sheer... I think anybody who puts out a book is terrified of it. You have put out a, a very personal book. Where do you see yourself kind of going next? I mean, are you interested in moving into fiction or something else? God, I would love to move into fiction. That's really all I can write right now, and it's probably because I just put out this book. I write stories about the Dust Bowl that more than likely no one will ever read, but I love writing them. There's a book I'm working on in my head, but it's it's just fragments of a book right now, so 
I don't know what I'll do with that. But uh, yeah, right now I, it's comforting to deal with other people's lives. Did you sort of, I mean, these essays, they are, as you say, they're sort of separate and they're, they're not completely chronological. Did, is there a sort of structure to them in your head as to how you thread them together? Yes and no. I wanted to have one timeline that made sense. So that the main timeline from the military to leaving the military to working in bars to you know, being a cable guy to going to jail, all of that's one pretty straight timeline. And that was you know, the fun part of essays is the rest of it I could bounce around because there is that one grounding timeline to go back to but yeah I it was intentional to keep part of it as chronological as possible that going to jail experience it's almost for a reader I'd say maybe maybe others have had different experience the most traumatic part of the book yeah. it's really obviously incredibly intense and upsetting and on the face of it one wouldn't think that a few nights in jail would be as bad as the other thing. Was that your experience? Yeah, it was my experience. It was my experience writing it. I saved that towards the end. And it was strange writing it during a pandemic because I was living in a duplex in Austin and I could hear all of my neighbors' conversations, every conversation they had in the kitchen. And it was these very, we've had way too much therapy arguments about I feel like what you've been doing recently. So I could hear everything, and there were parts of that where I was writing it where I was starting to wonder which which voices I could actually hear. I think I had to let myself go down a rabbit hole with that one and go a little bit crazy to write it again, or go a little crazy again to write it. It's probably the least chronological. It's the least anything, because I have no idea. I lost my goddamn mind, and it took a week. And there's this scary thing even about talking in America, especially about having a criminal record. But I think people need to know what solitary confinement does to people. There are people who have been in solitary here for years. And it takes a week. Yeah, and that was your... I mean, you. it was an assault on your ex-girlfriend's kind of new girlfriend was the... Is that, that? Yeah, it was, it was some lesbian drama. You kind of pushed her over, yeah, you call it lesbian drama. <laughs> <laughs> and, but you, one of the things you say in that, again, to go back to the theme of, you know, what fancy America doesn't know, you say lots of people be like, oh, you get a lawyer, you'll be out in 24 hours. Yeah. And it doesn't, it doesn't work like that. Not always. There's a very different justice system in this country between people who can afford it and people who can't. And and that's not even getting into the aspect of race. There's a really profoundly different justice system if you're black in this country. Yeah, I got lost in the system for a week, but my sister outside could find me a lawyer. But if you don't have that... I was in jail with people who had been in there for months because their husband couldn't afford bond money. Or there was no one outside to afford bond money. And that's the system we have. And 
the experience of kind of writing about all this is, I mean, the cliche to say it's therapeutic. Does it give you perspective or a a new way of looking at it, or is it simply a way of sharing what's already living with you? <laughs> yeah, I wouldn't call it therapeutic. There's also the the fun part of you, know, you write the book and then you get to spend a whole lot of time talking about what's in the book, and it's you know a constant constant going back to a lot of things you'd rather forget about. But uh, yeah, it did it did give me a lot of perspective on on some things. There are arguments I've had where I thought I was in the right for years now, and it turns out, you know. I was the jackass at the time, <laughs> which is not always a fun thing to find out. Yeah, looking at a lot of things from an adult perspective, uh, you know, even my parents joining a cult, it's looking at that at 23 is a lot different than looking at that at 44, realizing that, I mean, yeah, living in this country, it, it makes sense. If, you know, my mom was a single mom on food stamps of going back in when they offered, you know, here's a place to live and here's a family and here's childcare and here's a job. Why wouldn't you? So, yeah, the perspective changes a lot, I think, on my parents. It changes a lot on a lot of my relationships, but it's one of those things where you get a little older and you realize, you know, adults who were... My aunts used to throw us outside every Saturday morning when we were visiting. We couldn't figure out why. We thought they were just being mean. It's really hot outside. They were just hungover. So <laughs> didn't want to deal with five cousins playing in the house. So I just wanted you to just tell me a bit about your grandmother because she, she's got quite a sort of cameo role early on. But she's obviously this like beacon of sanity and tolerance when all around you is kind of nuts. Yeah, I don't know that anyone in Amarillo would call her sane or a beacon of sanity. She was the crazy liberal in Amarillo who recycled and did yoga with her old Russian Jew friend, Arne, and they were the crazy old bats of the town. But she was my beacon of sanity. She. It's hard to believe in the flood and the biblical version of it when you've gone fossil hunting with your grandma and she's explained the Ice Age to you. And she's the smartest person you know, so you're not going to call my grandma a liar. And yeah, she she sent me books. My grandmothers were the first people I told I was gay because they they couldn't have cared less. The only thing my grandma wanted to know when I told her was that my stepdad knew because she thought it was funny because it would piss him off. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, they were great. They were just very accepting, uh, both of them. But yeah, I put I put one in the book just because she was such a character. She was the one I leaned on. She was she's the one who made sure we went to the library as soon as we got out and got library cards and would drop us off there anytime we wanted. And when you write a book that's so that's so personal, do you I mean your grandmother I think didn't live to to read it, but do you kind of I mean are you anxious about how the people who are mentioned in it react? I was really worried. And I had a lot of conversations with my family beforehand. And 
You know, my siblings were just thrilled and go for it. And my parents are, you know, what are you going to do? <laughs> You're a writer. That's, <laughs> that's, that we always knew you were going to write about it. So yeah, they've been, they've been great. Other people mentioned in the book, it's funny, you get a legal review before you put a book out and they were very worried that I needed to change Jay's name because I portrayed him as such a, can you say whore? Yeah, you can say that. <laughs> and I was like, no, he's he's very proud of it. <laughs> he is is he is upset that I did not mention more of his shenanigans. So we don't we don't need to change his name. He's fine. Well, I think that's all we have time for. Lauren Hoff, thank you very much indeed for your time. Leaving isn't the hardest thing. It's a terrific collection of essays, and it is out now. Thank you so much. You were listening to The Spectator's Books podcast. I very much hope you enjoyed it. And if you did, please do consider rating or reviewing us on the iTunes store. We'd love to hear from you.